Um, okie dokie. So we are on page 17 next in regards to the question or the accusation that Christianity is anti-intellectual. And this is done by Angus Menuge. Uh, he's a, a faithful uh, um, layman uh, who uh, is very, very uh, good and uh, he writes quite a bit. He's out in California, I think, uh, out there and uh, does, does, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's in the, the dragon's lair. Um, but there are indeed, uh, there are some wonderful uh, Lutherans out in California who are fighting the good fight. Uh, so we give thanks to God for, for that. Okay, Christianity is anti-intellectual. Um, here are the bullet points that he's going to speak on. Chris, uh, page 17. Christians are called to make full use of the gift of intellect. Education has always been a part of Christian history, including both catechesis and academic study. University scholarship developed out of Christian monasteries, leading to careful study of both God's word and secular disciplines. This Christian value of intellect allowed genius to grow in science, philosophy, and the arts. Today, sophisticated secular people often dismiss Christianity as childish superstition, something that no well-educated person should take seriously. They may even suppose that Jesus' own words support their view. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18. This is a serious misunderstanding both of Christ and of Christian teaching about the life of the mind. Christ calls us to love God with all our minds, Matthew 22, and his great commission is a mandate for universal education, right? What part is, what's he talking about? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Same breath, teaching them to observe only the parts of the Bible you like. Teaching them all things that I have commanded you. So baptism and teaching, they go together. Uh, these, the, you know, you, you, if you remember too, like with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when he, he finds him on the side of the road and the eunuch says, well, how can I know who this is without someone to teach me? And even St. Paul in Romans 10 says, how can they believe if they haven't heard, right? How can they hear if someone doesn't preach and how can they preach if they're not sent? Uh, because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So this teaching uh, tied to baptism, this is the part of the Christian life. You are continuously taught the character of God and who he is. Baptize, teach. Bada bing. There you go. As the Italian philosophers say, uh, they go together. Uh, this is, this of course, I want to, to battle and, and to speak a little bit about this idea that, um, you know, when, when people are baptized, it's not just a Lutheran, Lutheran thing, but a lot of times people are baptized or they become part of a church, they dedicate their lives to Christ and they think, well, that's it. I'm good. I'm done. And in a sense, they're right, right? But remember, there's always a little truth to heresy. When, when the devil came to Adam and Eve, he sprinkles it with truth. When we're tempted to believe false teaching, there's always a bit of truth to it. 
So yes, in a sense, when we're baptized, we're good. We're blessed. But people then tend to think, well, if I'm good, okay, I'm done. And they don't live a life of following God's word in discipline and continually being taught. As you were baptized, made into a disciple, then be a student. If we were to talk about the Great Commission from the other side, right? Not just when Jesus is instructing his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, but also when Jesus is speaking to us as the baptized, go to make, all, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you need to remain a student of my word your entire life. Does Jesus say anything like that that comes to mind? Where he encourages us to keep studying his word? If you are truly my disciples, right, you will abide in my, you will abide in my word. Yep, if you are my, if you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. That, that passage, that's what it's building off of, this idea that we are always abiding in God's word. So this is one of the difficult things to fight uh, is, as a pastor, as I see, uh, one of the challenges is, you know, okay, we're baptized, we're good, we'll see you later. We'll see you when, when I, yeah, when you do my funeral, right? <laughs> or um, also, too, uh, there's that, that joke, and I mean, joke, it's a funny joke because there's truth to it, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, there, there are these three pastors, or there's a priest, a pastor, and a evangelical pastor, a priest, a Lutheran pastor, and an evangelical pastor. They're all at a bar, but nobody's telling the evangelical pastor's congregation because they don't like that. But all three of them are in a bar, and the Roman Catholic says, man, I've got these bats in the bell tower, and we can't figure out how to get them out. And they talk to each other. I'm, I'm shortening the joke, believe it or not. Uh, and... And the, Lutheran, and, and the Lutheran pastor says, well, I know how you can get rid of them. Just confirm them. They'll never come back again. The Roman Catholic priest says, oh, yeah, I can just baptize them. That's what happens in our church. And the evangelical says, yeah, let's just ask the bats to dedicate their life to the Lord, and they'll never come back again. So um, it's a joke, yeah, and it's unfortunately it's funny because, you know, there's a, a hint of truth to it. Um, in, in, in the Lutheran church, uh, it's, uh, you know, you take any pick of it, but a lot of times after confirmation, that's when, that's when people say, I've, I'm done, right? I finished, I've graduated, right? And, and uh, that's, that's not the case for confirmation. Confirmation is meant to teach you a pattern for your life because you come to church to, to study the Bible during the week. You, you, you are questioned about what you believe. You're given an opportunity to confess the faith in an easy environment so that then when you face a more difficult environment, you know what to say. You have these things. So, um, so here, you know, this idea, this is what uh, Dr. Manoj, I think I'm pretty sure he's a doctor, professor, in, anyhow. Um, the Great Commission is connected to education and learning God's word. Okay, back to the paragraph. This education focuses on the primary sources and equips us to understand God's two books, Scripture and creation. Christianity teaches that the world is governed by the rational laws of its creator. 
It also teaches that man is made in the image of God and hence capable of discerning these laws. These teachings fostered genius in philosophy, science, mathematics, technology, and the creative arts. Loving God with all your mind, page 18. When Jesus told his disciples to become like children, he was not telling them to stop thinking. He was telling them to be humble, Matthew 18, having an honest understanding of their own limitations. St. Paul clarifies that in our fallen state, we have only partial knowledge and it is distorted by sin, 1 Corinthians 13. While we are to be infants in evil, in our thinking, we should be mature, 1 Corinthians 14. Indeed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to be highly critical thinkers, not conformed to worldly patterns of thought, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12. This enables us to critique worldviews that oppose Christian teaching, 2 Corinthians 10, and to see how all reality holds together in Christ. So let's take a look at some of these passages. Um, if uh, somebody, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, uh, somebody, 1 Corinthians 14, which is going to be right by it, somebody, Romans 12, somebody, 2 Corinthians 10. So if somebody has 1 Corinthians 13, 11 to, to 12, could you read that for us? When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Very good. Uh, Okay, so here we have only partial knowledge. St. Paul says we see like through a, a lens or we see as, as through glass dimly, verse 12. We see in a mirror dimly, um, but then we will know. Uh, now we know in part, then we shall fully know. Uh, so there's this, this uh, understanding that we can't know everything on this side of, of eternal life. Um, but then in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, verse 20. Who has that? Go ahead and read it nice and loud. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. All right. And does somebody have Romans 12? Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Very good. So Romans chapter 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. But, but how are we, what does St. Paul say in that, in that verse? Um, how are our minds, how do, how do our minds grow in the Christian faith? What does St. Paul say to do? Okay, yeah, what word does he use there? By testing, right? St. Paul says we need to have discernment. We need to test, right? In other places, uh, he says to test the spirits, right? So to be able to test, not to just soak everything in like a sponge. St. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, 
you may discern what is the will of God. So we should test what we hear and we in ourselves will be uh, tested. Um, this enables us to critique worldviews. Back to 2 Corinthians 10, or two, go to 2 Corinthians 10 now. Verse 5, somebody have that? 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Oh, I like that. Okay. Weapons of our warfare of not of the flesh, he says in verse 4. But we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So to be equipped to do that. And then first Colossians, or first Colossians. <laughs> Colossians 1, verse 17. I, know, well, I was going to say, one Colossians. First Colossians 1, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things um, why don't you keep reading? Read, um, why don't you just finish that, that paragraph there? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay. Uh, loving God with all of our minds. Here St. Paul is stressing very much not to be infants, in, in our studying the word of God. Uh, page 18, the bottom, general education. Recalling Deuteronomy 8.3, Christ taught that all human life depends not only on material sustenance, bread alone, but also on the word of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. Isn't that good timing that we have this reading today as our gospel? His great commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 included a call to teach all people what he had commanded. This applies to both rich and poor, male and female. In response, the early church offered catechal training to both men and women newly converted to the Christian faith. Starting in the fourth century, cathedral schools educated both boys and girls. In addition to teaching Christian doctrine, these schools equipped pupils with the seven liberal arts. These included the universal tools of learning, the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and ways of understanding the created order, the quadrivium of arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Far from being anti-intellectual, Christianity has been the main driving force behind education at every level. Martin Luther was a great champion of universal public education. He recognized that a major reason for the corruption of the medieval church was that ordinary people did not know the scriptures. This meant they could not hold the church accountable when it promoted errors like salvation by works and indulgences. So it was important that children be taught to read, that they were soundly catechized in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. While grounding in the word of God was paramount to maintaining the faith, Luther also emphasized preparation for our earthly vocations as citizens. In 1524, he wrote to the councilmen of all the cities of Germany, exhorting them to use public funds to support Christian schools. He argued that treasure, walls, buildings, and arms were not enough to maintain a civilized city. That city's best and greatest welfare, safety, and strength consists rather in its having many able, learned, wise, honorable, and well-educated citizens. 
So I think here, you know, that we Christians, there really is a tendency in the education society, education system, whatever, in some cases, that in order to, uh, I don't know what I want to call it, in order to look successful, they, instead of saying, let's up the education, what direction does our, gen our education system generally go? It, it, dumbs it, it dumbs it down, right? And so we as Christians, um, I think uh, Angus Mnuch here makes a good argument that we Christians should uh, not, not stand for that. And we should stand up against the dumbing down of, of education. And uh, even here, as he says, Luther says, you know, even in the secular world, in secular schools, um, we should not abide and stand by the dumbing down. Um, but indeed to have high expectations in many regards um, and to uh, do our best as teachers and instructors um, to help with the, the lifting up instead of the lowering, the lowering down. So just as a plain, you know, just as, uh, just as, a, as a posture that we have toward education uh, in this idea that um, if, if we're going to dumb it down, you know, we are we are inviting our own demise. Higher education, verse, uh, page 19. Scholars agree that the earliest universities, such as Bologna, <laughs> there's my education for you, right? Such as Bologna, uh, Paris and Oxford, Cambridge and Padua, grew out of the monasteries. The monasteries preserved and copied manuscripts of both scriptural and secular texts. As variations were found in different versions of the same work, it became necessary to find the most reliable text. This tradition of research carried over into the first universities. There was a renaissance, rebirth, of learning when scholars abandoned the scholastic ideas of endless commentaries and called for a return to the original sources in the original languages. The doctrinal disputes at the time of the Reformation further reinforced the need to discover what God's word really said. If scriptures are highest norm and standard for judging doctrine, we cannot defer to secondary authorities. We must avoid, and this is an important word. I, I really want you all to know this word. It's a Greek word. We must avoid eisegesis, okay? Now, this isn't eyes of Jesus, right? It's eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading meanings into the text of scripture, Instead of, instead, we must practice exegesis, drawing the meaning out of the text itself. So two important words, eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is when you come to the Bible and you say something like, oh, I don't know. Um, okay, yeah, let's use the sacrament, right? When we come to the Bible already saying, Oh, it can't be the body of Jesus. It must only be symbolic. And then we go to the Bible and we say, look, Jesus says here, the flesh benefits you nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. So people have taken that text. They've already ruled in their mind that it can't be the true body and blood of Jesus. So then they have that idea in their head. And then when they read the text, they put that on the text. 
Eisegesis means you are putting your meaning on the Bible. Exegesis, if you see this ex out of, exegesis means you come to the scriptures and say, let the scriptures teach me what is true. If Jesus says it is his body and blood, that it is bread and wine, then that's what I must be taught. So eisegesis is putting your logic or your wisdom above the Bible and saying, I'm going to look for where the Bible proves my point. Exegesis means I'm going to pull this teaching out of the Bible, and that's what, that's, that's what I'm going to believe and trust. There's, um, there's a, a gentleman named Chris Roseborough who's a Lutheran, and, and he talks a lot about eisegesis, and he has this podcast where he, he gives a lot of examples of it, but he plays this, this funny song. He, he takes that song, um, You're So Vain, right? You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, right? And he says, he says the temptation for modern man is to take the Bible and say, you know, he says, I'm so vain. Don't you know this whole story is about me, right? And he reads into various texts, like, you know, one of the, the obvious ones is when it talks about David and Goliath, and all these people say, David is a story about you and conquering your enemies, right? A little bit of truth to that. But no, Jesus says the Bible is about who? Himself. The Bible is about him first and foremost. And then, of course, secondary, we, we take lessons from it. Jesus as our example and things, but... So oftentimes people just get caught up in the example side of it and they read themselves into the text. Isa, I'm putting myself in here. Isa Jesus. Um, uh, what's another example of that? Well, anyway, uh, he makes use of that song, We're So Vain, We Think This Whole Story Is About Us. And he's right. We are very vain. We think everything is about us. Um, so these two words, exegesis and eisegesis, uh, to be in your, in your back pocket there for your own study of the scriptures, and also when you are defending the faith from somebody who's misusing the scriptures, when they are, when they are doing eisegesis, they're putting their, I'm so important, eisegesis, I'm putting my meaning on the text, instead of letting the text teach me. Instead of pulling the meaning out, um, the devil wants you to force your meaning onto it. Okay, so page 20, he's going to start talking about the Reformation. Why was exegesis so important in the Reformation? Why was, why was pulling from the scriptures meaning so important in the Reformation? Yeah, we, they, that's where we get one of the solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's right. Because what was the church doing? Anything and everything they wanted. Uh, uh, they were doing eisegesis, even so far as to say, well, what the Pope says is as good as scripture. He is speaking on behalf of God when he is speaking what they, you know, when he is speaking his teachings and church councils. They are infallible. Uh, so the scripture alone developed out of this. So I heard some other people saying, why was this idea, exegesis, so important for the Reformation? 
Any other thoughts or ideas? I've got folks back in the Bible, like just the, the masses, not just the priests interpreting it on their behalf. It allowed everybody to, to get familiar with the text and learn from the proper guide. Yeah, this is not just something that's for the professionals. This is something you can do, right? And in fact, you know, laymen were a huge part of the Reformation. Uh, our, one of our, uh, the Book of Concord, uh, the Augsburg Confession, one of our confessional documents is written by a layperson. Um, the, 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 the Reformation and this, uh, this idea that you pull from the scriptures and that God gives that Holy Spirit to all his people. It, it isn't just the job of the, the, the pastor, the priests, pastors, and teachers to be able to draw out of the text. No, that's, that's for everybody. But we also have to be careful of ourselves. We have to have discernment. And eisegesis is one of the traps that the church uh, in the Reformation, they, they did eisegesis by saying this is all about Peter and the Pope. You know, this is about the church and its ultimate uh, authority. Uh, anybody else? Just real quick. <clears throat> when we read the Bonhoeffer, not Bonhoeffer, we read the Martin Luther biography mm. by Eric Metaxas, I was surprised to learn that even a lot of the priests and whatnot didn't study the scriptures themselves <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They didn't read it. They, didn't, they just took the traditional things that were taught, so they weren't learning the Bible either. So how in the world would um, you know, the people that attended Mass even be able to... Exactly. So it was pretty astonishing. Yeah, and, and you know, the small catechism, does anybody remember, what does the small catechism say on its title page at its very beginning? As the head of the household should teach the family, right? This returning to the word of God is important for the family. And dovetailing on what Chris said, the large catechism, do you know who the large catechism was written for? Detestable or deplorable. <laughs> Christopher is not just a grumpy man. He's quoting, he's quoting Luther. Luther. Luther says this large catechism is for the detestable condition I find in the parishes that the pastors don't even know the Lord's Prayer by heart. They don't know the Ten, they don't know the Ten Commandments. They don't know the Creed. They don't know the Creed. <laughs> You really are kind of a, a Nancy Downer. The issue was at the time was everything was in Latin and no one understood Latin, so they only they only took yeah. for they took to heart what the priest told them. Yeah, and the yeah. priest could interpret it any way they wanted to into German at that time, and they just believed it without knowing the truth. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a big part of this general idea of education, you know, and, and uh, also, too, with this attack nowadays in our day and age on the meaning of words, right? When people say your words can mean anything you want them to, that ultimately is an attack on the gospel, right? Because the gospel is what? Preached. It is words, and if the devil can establish among our secular society that words have no meaning, that you can make them whatever you want, because the devil's ultimate goal is to steal the gospel away. And the devil is perfectly happy to keep, you know, to steal it away. Oh, what's the gospel? It's whatever you want it to be, right? So here, this insistence on the importance of education and teaching and holding to the true meaning of words 
that they aren't our tool to, to please ourselves, to read into them what we want, right? You see eisegesis on a, on a societal level here now. You know, with that great documentary, I haven't watched it. I've seen enough clips to perhaps have watched it. But um, Matt, Matt Walsh, you remember his documentary? He says, what is a woman? And he goes and interviews people all over the world, asking them this simple question, what is a woman? And people say, it's whatever you want it to be. And Matt Walsh then destroys these arguments one, one by one. It's, it's quite, quite good, but it's a, a, a sign that we are, just, we are pretty much back where we were, even worse than the Reformation in regards to um, understanding of words and that we have priests in our society, our politicians. They are priests, if you think about it. They, they are the ones who go to the holy temple and they are the ones who give to us, who come down from on high to tell us what is true and right by making laws and saying, you must call somebody by their preferred pronouns. Well, what's your proof? They don't have proof. It's an element of faith. They're asking you to believe something and thereby they are priests who are using a language that we don't know and only they know and they have the key and they will reward you. And if you don't abide by their doctrine, you go to purgatory and they will purge you. So in a sense, with this understanding of education and words and the foundation and the gospel, we are always right back to where we, where we started. So what do we do? We return to the, uh, does anybody know the Latin phrase that was real important at the time of the Reformation? The return to the sources. Come on, Latin students, Latin teachers. Two words. You know it. Oh, it starts with ad. Ad, ad fontis, the fount, ad fontis, right? Return to the fount, return to the source, ad fontis, return to the source. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> All right, uh, verse, page 20. The Reformation emphasis on sound exegesis extends to other areas as well. We should find out what even pagan classical authors like Homer, Plato, and Aristotle actually said. And it was widely recognized that God was the author not only of scripture, God's word, but also the book of nature, God's world. Modern science arose from the project of reading the laws inscribed by God in his creation. Great scientists like Johannes Kepler and Galileo Galilei rejected the scholastic approach to natural science. This approach used preconceived philosophy to deduce what the laws of nature must be because it denied God's freedom to choose different laws. We cannot know in advance how God chooses to govern his world. We must look and see, which is the basis of the modern empirical method. But we can be confident that the laws we discover will make sense because God is rational. The same logos, rational principle, with which he governs the natural world is also present in the mind of his image bearers. Thus, the assumption of all research universities today that the empirical method can discern coherent mathematical laws of nature derives from theological assumptions. 
God, a free and rational being, is author of these laws, and human reason can discern them. The great atheist cosmologist Stephen Hawking wrote in brief answers to the big questions that we live in a universe governed by rational laws that, through science, we can discover and understand. He was unconsciously drawing on these theological assumptions. That's one of the greatest arguments we have against an argument uh, that tries to say there is no God. We, we base it on the understanding that there are laws of right versus wrong. The fact that you are even trying to convince me that there isn't a God at a basic sense says there is a God. You are trying to argue for what you believe, what you confess as natural order would be good. So how do you find, define good if there is no God? You can't. So all of the arguments of atheism, I don't want to say all of them, but modern atheism, as, he, as the author points out here with Stephen Hawking, is based on the idea that our universe has rational laws, that we can understand it. All right, um, philosophy, science, mathematics, and technology. It looks like the kids are done. So let's go ahead and, and pause there. We can stop. Uh, any, any questions or input, we'll pick up with philosophy, uh, science, mathematics, page 20, uh, next week. Yes? When I was growing up, and I went to several churches, and um, one of the things that always made me, like, I guess kind of nervous, I guess you could say, about reading the Bible as a child was, um, I mean, I was like 11, 12 years old, and I had teachers read a scripture and be like, how would you interpret this, and how mm. would you apply it, to apply it to your life? And I'm like, I don't know, what do you mean? You <laughs> <laughs> come up with some amazing answer, you know, and it's like, it was like that yeah. all over the place. It's almost like the words were Latin again, and uh, we were too too dumb to understand what they were actually meaning because they have hidden meanings. Oh, yeah. We were taught. Yeah. Instead Chris Rosebro has that funny bit. Yeah. Uh, Judas yeah. hung himself. <laughs> what is what is it? Tell us. It's just it's a funny bit, you know, he does where he's it's this what does this mean to you? And it's this person that's like this evangelical life? person that's like, how praying and they're like, How do I they're like opening up the scripture, you know, to some random place and it's like, God, you know, what does this mean to me? And he opens it up and he says, Judas hung himself. Oh, he opened it to that passage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or or you open it up himself. You open it up and you point to it, and, G and it's that passage from Jesus where he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Ooh. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Roseboro, he's, he's good. He's good with that. Any other? Any other? Th thank you, Anna. Yeah, that, that's a danger, you know, of, of you, know, um, you know, what does this mean to you as if there, anybody has a private interpretation of the scriptures? really discourages, especially young people, to read the Bible. Oh, because interesting. Because smart enough. Yeah. Uh, we needed someone to tell us what it meant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in the, in the Catholic Church, we were taught not to read the Bible. Because if we did, we would question, and we weren't allowed to question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, very good. Uh, uh, let's close with prayer and uh, be, uh, be about the Lord's business of donuts. <laughs> Let us pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, in the time of his temptation, when the devil came directly and tempted him, he returned to the source. He returned to your word. He uh, found refuge and a fortress in your word, knowing that it teaches us who you are, that you are a God who protects, a God who uh, gives us strength, a God who equips us with tools to fight, because it is he himself by his Holy Spirit who fights through us, that when we face sin and temptation, we know you give us a way out. When we do fall, O Lord, we thank you that that same word that you give us as our refuge and our strength also forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and builds us up. We pray, O Lord, we may be built up, that we may be able to defend the faith, that we would trust your word, that the Holy Spirit indeed gives us words to say, even when we don't know what to say. That we may trust you, and that we may constantly go to your word as a source of, uh, and treasure of wisdom uh, to teach us, that we may be students of your word our entire life. We ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.